This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by Physicians for Social Responsibility, the Sam L. Cohen Foundation, and listeners like you. This is WMPG. I'm Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects that we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today is the last show in our series on living with anxiety, and we decided to play a little with the idea of anxiety, to explore some of the things that are connected to anxiety, but that are not anxiety, things that might be confused with it. I was curious about existential anxiety. I've always heard that term, and I assumed it had to do with either facing my mortality or related to that, a kind of existential angst about the meaning of my life, the kind of anxiety that feels like part of being alive. We've talked to a number of people in this series who struggle with severe anxiety, anxiety that's considered an illness. But I wondered if learning about existential anxiety might be a way to universalize the issue through something that we all face. I was also excited to have a chance to learn about existentialism as a philosophy. So I called my brother, Peter Hallward, who's a professor of modern European philosophy at Kingston University in London, to see if he could explain just what is existential philosophy and how it might relate to anxiety. Right from the outset, he told me that the term existential anxiety was not quite the one that philosophers use. I think we should start with a, a rough distinction between anxiety on the one hand and, and existential anguish or angst uh, on the other. So anxiety in a kind of common sense way might be bound up with something in particular, like you could be anxious about an exam or a job interview or something coming up tomorrow, something like that, something that has a clear outcome that you're worried about. Whereas uh, existential uh, anguish or angst is much more general. It's, it doesn't have a specific object. And in fact, it's precisely that that makes it existential. It, 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 it's like, a, it's, rather than being some, you know, an anxiety about something in particular, it's anguish about existence or about your, your life or your being or, or how you have to, you know, the choices that you have to make, the freedom that you've got to do this or that. It's much more global encompassing thing, as well as also, at least in the tradition, a very isolating and individuating thing. It's your anguish in this moment where you're suddenly wondering, what on earth should I do? You know, what should I do with my life? He said that there are a few big names in existentialist philosophy, including Camus, Kierkegaard, and Sartre. Sartre in particular, he was the guy who, who, who I think did the most to push this term existentialism. Pete says Sartre's idea of existentialism was all about freedom. What's distinctively human about our way of being in the world is that we're totally and absolutely free. First, we come into the world as free human beings, and then we have to figure out what kinds of human beings we're going to be, what kinds of lives we're going to lead, what sorts of choices we want to make. The freedom to make those choices and to lead the life that we decide to lead uh, is, according to Sartre anyway, at least in his early work, is total, absolute, unconditional. So you have no alibi, nothing to get you off the hook of making certain kinds of choices, and it's precisely that, that that is anguishing, that gives rise to anxiety and dread and so on, because you know that you're fully responsible for the decisions that you make. So basically, the price of free will is anxiety, and maybe even guilt, because probably you could be making better choices. Generally speaking, we go to a lot of trouble to avoid the anguish. You know, we go through the routine, we justify it, we rationalize it, or, or we play around with like small changes, but they don't fundamentally challenge anything. Uh, and that, indeed, is how most people live. Sartre calls this bad faith. You know, we, we basically it's a way of identifying with the roles that we've come to play. You know, like the, you know, the, the say the 
in, it can be anything. It can be a good role or a bad role. It could be like the, the role of the understanding psychiatrist, for example, or the exuberant, uh, outgoing older sister, or whatever it is, or any other role you might want to think about. Um, and as long as you play those roles, uh, you can you can kind of get by without thinking about the decisions and choices that underlie them at a, at a deeper level. But Sartre says that, and of course you can take issue with this, but that there is no there is no mandate for playing those roles. There's nothing like a, a sort of family dynamic or cultural inheritance or class position or racial essence or anything like that that could be, you know, referred to as the sort of underlying reason of why you behave the way that you behave. You, you behave the way you behave, according to Sarge, and this would include the illnesses you contract, the decisions you make, the people you hang out with, all of those things. All of that ultimately refers back to the project that you've chosen for yourself. Even if you may not be aware of the choice, in fact, typically, of course, we're, we're not aware of it. We bury it one way or another. But that's, that's, where it all, and that's what it all refers back to, is this fundamental choice that you've made. The more I listened, the more anxious, or I guess anguish, I started to feel. In a world where I'm free to do anything, according to Sartre, there are no excuses for my struggles or my failures. There's no blaming anything on circumstances or external forces. It's all on me. He basically says no matter what your background is, no matter what the circumstances, when you make a decision, it's a free decision and you're fully responsible for it right down the line. So he's, he, his examples are extreme. He says if you're being tortured by the Gestapo and they're ripping your teeth out, uh, it's nevertheless your free decision whether or not you spill the beans on your friends or hold true to the cause or, what, or whatever it is. And right down to the idea that if you contract an illness, you've in some weird way chosen that illness. I don't think he's a compassionate philosopher. There's something very hard-edged about him. On the other hand, though, he he's a philosopher who really does celebrate uh, kind of commitments that you make in the world. He's, he's very optimistic, in fact, about people's ability to engage. This term engagement is very important for, for him, that you can commit to a cause or to a project or an idea and really hold to it despite all kinds of obstacles. There's no guarantee that you'll succeed, and there's no guarantee then that you'll you'll hold true to your cause, you can fail or give up at any point, and that only depends on you. But not only that, there's also no guarantee that you're even doing the right thing in the first place, that you've chosen the right cause, uh, that in the end, you can always question that. So in all this thought-provoking and anxiety-provoking talk about freedom and responsibility, I was discovering that there actually wasn't much overlap between existential anguish and the type of anxiety that we've been covering in this series, like OCD, panic disorder, or social phobia. I asked Pete what Sartre might have to say about anxiety in the more clinical sense. So in clinical terms, Sartre makes an interesting distinction in a book called A Sketch for a Theory of Emotions. And he basically he distinguishes between, on the one hand, the feeling you have about something. Let's say you, you encounter something threatening, like you're walking along the street and this dog comes up and starts barking at you. This is one of his examples. You know, what you feel is fear in the face of this dog. It might bite you. It's a reasonable reaction to have, right? Uh, on the other hand, and that, that is just a, for him, that's just about being present in the moment, having your eyes open, seeing that the dog is indeed threatening and, and responding appropriately. On the other hand, though, he says, you can concoct an emotional drama around a thing, which is a different sort of uh, experience, different kind of psychic state than a simple feeling or, or sentiment in relation to something. So that you might be afraid uh, of that dog, for example, but you can also create an emotional scenario of panic uh, or of resolute courage you know in the face of the dog you're gonna stare the dog down or you might faint you know in terror 
Uh, and each of those responses, those emotional responses of courage or terror or something like that, uh, for Sartre is a, is a kind of play that you write for yourself. It's like a sort of scenario that you inhabit, a, a role that you play, that you scripted for yourself. And that this would account for, according to Sartre anyway, virtually all of your actual psychic experience. The roles, basically it's the illnesses that you have, the symptoms that you show. According to Sartre, who's, who's really merciless on this point, when you drill down through them, according to him, uh, what you find are basically stage directions for the, the role that you've decided to play, and that it has to be referred back ultimately to your decision to play it, the motives, the purposes, the freedom ultimately, that has led you to adopt that particular role, that particular set of symptoms, that form of behavior, for which in the end, according to him, you and only you are responsible. The one thing you can't choose, though, is freedom itself. You, you're not free not to be free. You know, you're condemned to freedom, as he puts it. And anguish is this unique state, emotional state, if you like, that uh, in which you experience that freedom as such, without a particular purpose, without the freedom to do this or that particular thing, just the experience of freedom in general. And that is anguishing, he says, because it just exposes you to this utter and total responsibility that you can choose any course of action. So the take-home message for me is that if we're doomed to freedom, then Sartre believes that we are doomed to feel some of this angst as part of being human. His ideas were kind of interesting to me, but they really didn't give me much in terms of how to understand the deeper meaning of anxiety or how people suffer with it. If anything, it seems that Sartre was not particularly compassionate about the kind of anxiety we've been exploring in the series, OCD, panic, and so on. He seems to think it's a role we've chosen to play in an emotional drama that we haven't questioned. But my sense is that Sartre really didn't understand that some people's brains have a hair-trigger response to certain stimuli and flood the person with overwhelming terror that has very little to do with choice. The real choice that I see in my office is whether you want to face it and explore it. Of course, before I disavow existential philosophy entirely, I should say that this conversation was my first real exposure to these ideas, and I'm sure there's a lot that I don't really understand. But if you'd like to learn more about it, Pete recommends the book Existentialism, A Very Short Introduction by Thomas Flynn as a place to start. Feel completely, unbearably free. To check it out. Next, I wanted to explore another idea that is often confused with anxiety. The idea that people who are quiet or introverted are necessarily shy or anxious. In 2013, Susan Cain wrote the book Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, in which she really takes on the idea of what introversion means and how it is misunderstood and devalued. A book reviewer for The Washington Post and The New York Times, Reeve Lindbergh is the author of two dozen books for adults and children. She also happens to be the daughter of aviator authors Charles and Anne Morrow Lindbergh. I asked her to give me her sense of the book. I chose it because it affirms introversion and really distinguishes it from anxiety or shyness. In my clinical work, I see many people who identify as introverts, and they struggle with feeling judged for it as if it's a deficit. The book has helped many of my patients and my friends. 
Here's my conversation with Reeve Lindbergh. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Reeve. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So we're going to be talking about a book about introversion. And before I ask you about the book, I'm going to just start by defining our terms. And actually, according to Susan Cain, the author of Quiet, shyness is the fear of social disapproval or humiliation, while introversion is a preference for environments that are not overstimulating. Tell me a little bit about the book Quiet and and what you learned from her about introversion. Well, I think I learned that some very powerful people, very interesting and powerful people in society are actually introverts. And she starts the book right off with Rosa Parks, who would not give up her seat to a white man. Um, many years ago in Alabama, and this was not a uh, you know very active, loud um, protester kind of a radical personality. This was just a quiet lady with a lot of inner strength, and I think she's a wonderful example of the power of introverts. Uh, somebody who would never want to be out in public in any big, big, noisy way, but somebody who has a great deal of quiet strength. And I do think that that's a lot of what Susan Cain is talking about when she says, um, you know, the, the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking. She wants those people who are not excited by being stimulated by tons of other people all the time. She wants those people to understand their strengths and how powerful one can be as an introvert in a world that values extroverts. That was the thing that was quite powerful for me reading her book, Reeve, is that because I probably am more extroverted myself, um, she really opened my eyes to how our whole culture overvalues extroversion. And, And even in our schools, you know, is now organizing classrooms around pods, like the tables are grouped together so kids can share work on projects. Certainly my child is experiencing that in school. And that this really is not helpful to kids who are introverts who work better thinking, not out loud, but sort of interiorly. And I was struck for you, you know, did it, did that feel like news to you or did you already feel aware of kind of how? Well, I do feel aware of it to, to some extent. Um, I think when I was a teacher many years ago, it was terribly important to me to understand what each child's style was. But I had tiny little, little classrooms in southern Vermont and I had, you know, 10 kids one year and 12 kids the next. But in a, in a context like that where you have um, a, a fairly small group of children, you can really tell that this kid is not going to do well with these three others who are you know, working with each other and ideas back and forth and so on. This kid is going to be happiest on their own, and they can, you can let them set up a, a little sort of nested system. I think many teachers understand very well how, um, how introverts work. And yet they're under pressure, you know, whatever the trend is. I remember when you weren't supposed to have the desk together because you didn't (laughs) want the kids to share work. That was was long ago, you know, the straight rows and everybody was supposed to be, you know, learning separately. But, um, you know, all the fashions in teaching and learning go back and forth. But Susan Cain adds something quite wonderful to the notion of how individuals both learn and operate in the world. And, um, you know, aside from Rosa Parks, there are many, many others who, uh, who do best by 
even if they are able to go out and become teachers and speakers and um, you know be out in the in the public forum a great deal, very often these people need kind of more recharging with quiet. Um, uh, in between their their activity in the world. So an introvert, according to Susan Cain, is someone who really needs that interiority, that quiet as a way to regain energy. And on this show, you know, we're very interested in kind of what are resources for people and what people can take home from this that will be concretely useful. And that is a sense I get is that valuing yourself, not trying to fit yourself into a mold that doesn't fit is sort of her first thing. Absolutely. She lo- She really wants people to realize that while um, we need both introverts and extroverts, and very often an introvert and an extrovert will marry and kind of complement one another's uh, styles, but we really need those people who can sit quietly and listen. Quite often, people there are you know it's a world in which people are so eager to talk and express themselves and you know, all that that um, you don't get listeners. And um, an introvert tends to be a listener. And uh, I remember you know hearing from my parents when my mother and father first met. The thing that he was most drawn to was that she listened. And he was famous. He was Charles Lindbergh, the aviator, and everybody wanted to talk to him. And here was a woman who just wanted to sit and listen. She was an interior person. She, I always thought that when he was fascinated by aviation and air and air and space, outer space even, she was interested in inner space and what happens inside us. And her best-known book, Gift from the Sea, was about being sure to take time, everybody, not just you know, the introverts of the world, but everybody take the time to recharge ourselves and to replenish ourselves with solitude and quietness. Uh, and I, I was delighted in this book to see that Susan Cain feels that the, the quiet ones, the introverts, the, the, the inner, inward seekers are, in fact, a source of strength for the world because they do stop and consider before taking action. And this is a whole uh, personality type that we desperately need. Part of what I got from reading it, Reeve, was that she kind of details the, the degree of creativity and innovation that has come from people who know how to be quiet, alone, and thinking. And that yeah. if we sort of stomp this out, there will be an, or something so precious lost to the world. I loved seeing that she had one of those um, reader's guides in the back of the book uh, directed really toward people who are working with children, you know, telling people, be careful about, um, you know, trying to push too hard with your introverted child. And then she, in fact, said, you must treasure, you know, treasure your child. And if she's reluctant to try new things or meet new people, don't force them into it. Just expose them gradually, you know, start slowly. Don't try to turn your child into another kind of child, because probably not only are they not supposed to be an extroverted person if they're not, but you're hurting something in that child if you're pushing them on, you know, a way that doesn't go with their own character and personality. Reeve, we're going to have to close in a minute, but I want to just ask you in closing, were you left with any important kind of unanswered questions or things that you found yourself asking in a new way afterward? Well, 
it's funny, I wondered whether really we are an extroverted society or whether we think we are. If you talk to most people, I suspect many of them are less extroverted than they feel they have to be. I mean, I'd love to see another kind of survey to see how much we are, we are as a nation, kind of forcing people into this rah-rah um, personality type, and to what degree uh, many, many people are, in fact, quieter and less, um, you know, less aggressively energetic um, in the world than, um, than they feel they should be. It's kind of a national characteristic, but I wonder whether it is genuine or whether it is pushed upon us by culture. first two segments today on existential angst and introversion were about things that aren't quite anxiety, but sometimes get confused with it. But I wanted to close with something that can help when you really are struggling with anxiety. I invited Rob McGinley Myers, author of the blog Anxious Machine, Anxiety, Technology, and Scary Things, to review some of the top therapeutic iPhone apps for anxiety and give us his take on whether they help. Here's Rob. My first experience of major anxiety hit me in the fall of 2008. I was struggling at a new job. My wife had just gone back to work after two years at home. Our kids had started daycare against their will, and the economy was imploding. It's maybe not surprising that I started to wake up in the middle of the night, every night, unable to get back to sleep. I worried about my job, whether I would forget something, whether I had already forgotten something, I worried about what would happen if I got laid off, or worse yet, fired. What would our friends think if they heard I'd been fired? What would my wife think? Would she regret marrying me? And could I even find a new job in the current economy? It's hard to convey the physical sensation of persistent, pervasive dread. Imagine that moment when you realize you forgot something important for the big meeting, or the moment you feel your car sliding on black ice or the moment you see your child falling headfirst in slow motion off a jungle gym. Now imagine feeling that way for weeks on end. It's embarrassing to admit, but one of the things that helped me dig my way out of anxiety was my phone. At a time when everything else in my life felt broken, Apple had just introduced the iPhone, and I began using it to take control of my life. A huge part of my anxiety was actually lack of organization. My phone helped me start using a to-do list for the first time. It helped me keep my first actual working calendar. I slept better because I knew I didn't have to remember everything. I could offload most of my thoughts about the future into this tiny external brain on my nightstand. But sometimes my anxiety still sneaks up on me, and I start feeling worried or guilty for no apparent reason. So I set out to determine whether my phone could help me manage my anxiety more directly, with apps designed specifically for that task. To be honest, I expected a fair number of these apps to be cheesier and touchy-feelier than I could endure. I worried about self-helpy mantras printed in Comic Sans typefaces on pictures of waterfalls and rainbows. And there was a little bit of that, 
because most of these apps are basically guided meditations. They give you something vaguely pleasant to look at while you're instructed to count backwards from 200 and picture a special happy place where you feel safe. An app called Don't Panic shows a shifting pattern of colored light as the speaker lulls you with a Scottish brogue. And as you become more aware of your inner peace, can you remember a time and place, or imagine a time and place when you were really relaxed? Relax, another app, applies hypnotherapy while giving you a choice of video backdrops, falling leaves, drifting clouds, and yes, even a waterfall. Slowly, deeply, and regular. I don't really understand the pretty backdrop this in this context because most of these apps also instruct you to close your eyes. Your eyes are closed, so comfortably closed. So just keep them closed as you listen to this recording. But the app Breathe has one of the more unique visualizations, showing you a geometric rainbow-colored flower shape growing and shrinking as it instructs you to breathe in and out. Breathe in. At first I found this mesmerizing, but the robotic repetition quickly became creepy. And that's actually my main criticism of most of these apps. They often make me feel more rather than less anxious. The hypnotherapy app Relax begins by saying, And I'd like to reassure you that the content of this recording is entirely safe. At no stage will you lose the ability to end the program. You will always remain in control. As soon as I heard that, I felt like I was in a science fiction movie about to be brainwashed. I don't know a lot about hypnotherapy, but these hypnotherapy apps made me feel more skeptical than relaxed, especially with their over-reliance on repetition of certain words. I would like you to concentrate on these words. Peace and calm. Peace and calm. Other apps triggered my anxiety about becoming the kind of person who would download apps for anxiety, the kind of person who'd listen to people intone advice over new age music. The app at ease doesn't have as many visual frills as the other apps I tried, but I still found its music and the tone of the speaker's voice off-putting. Now simply be aware of whatever is being experienced right now in this moment. What are you experiencing? Other people might get more help out of these guided meditations than I did, but there was one app I tried that I actually liked. It's called MindShift, and it doubles as both a virtual pamphlet about anxiety and a collection of exercises and meditations to help users manage anxiety. There's a section called Anxiety 101 that answers questions like, what is anxiety? And when does anxiety become a problem? There's a section that helps you determine what areas of your life cause you anxiety and what specific steps you could take to reduce your anxiety in those situations. And there's a section that gives you a list of thoughts you could focus on to help you reduce your anxiety in the moment. Thoughts like, these feelings will pass, or this is not actually dangerous or hurting me. The app lets you star certain thoughts so that you have a collection of thoughts that work for you at the ready. But my favorite aspect of MindShift is the tastefulness of the guided meditations. Unlike the other apps I tried, there's no music, 
and the woman doesn't sound like she's trying to tell me about the groovy nature of the universe. Find a comfortable place to sit. Put your feet flat on the ground and wiggle them around until you feel they are firmly planted. Gently close your eyes or lower your gaze to a comfortable distance on the floor in front of you. Now let your shoulders drop down, away from your ears, and try to loosen and relax your posture. I remember when my anxiety was at its worst, when I'd lie awake for hours at night, nauseated by the spin of panicked thoughts in my head. I could have used a kind but matter-of-fact voice telling me how to calm down. Pay attention to your breathing and just allow yourself to continue to breathe naturally. That's what I like about MindShift. The whole app is designed around the idea that reducing anxiety isn't magic. It doesn't require waterfalls or pan flutes. It's just taking the time to remember, you are here. Lions are not going to eat you. Take a breath. Be in your body instead of your head. You don't need an app to do that, but an app like MindShift can help you do it. And there's no shame in that. Thanks, Rob, for that piece. You can find his blog at anxiousmachine.com. And thanks, too, to my guests, Peter Hallward and Reeve Lindbergh. If you did not get a chance to listen to this whole show and you would like to, or if you'd like to email the link to a friend, please go to our website at safespaceradio.com. You can download the rest of our shows. You can subscribe to get a weekly email with a link to that week's show. You can also download the show to your smartphone for your morning commute. You can download us on iTunes, and you can like us on Facebook. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing the show, to Jim Russell for being our consultant. Coming up next is 